At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. In 1937, Stephanie Stuckey's grandfather opened one roadside pecan stand, just one. And yet it grew a little bit from that one roadside pecan stand. At its peak, the name of the business became Stuckey's. Stuckey's was a one-stop oasis for travelers along America's highways with their iconic pecan log rolls available in more than 350 stores in more than 40 states. After her grandfather's death and decades of outside ownership, the once beloved and once very popular Stuckey's brand fell into disrepair. And yet, I've always loved that expression, and yet, it's never too late to reimagine what is possible. It's never too late to imagine the comeback. Today, Stephanie, that is the granddaughter of the, the founder, shares how she is reviving an iconic American brand, how she continues to build upon her family's legacy, and how she's calling upon her grandfather's wisdom to help Stuckey's become the go-to pecan snack brand in the world, not just the United States, but around the world. My friends, this conversation is really not about snacks or pecans or grandparents or roadside stands or anything else that you might think in that introduction it's about. It's really about family. It's about community. It's about purpose. It's about that comeback. It's about fighting for it. It's about pivoting in a new direction. And it's about recognizing that in spite of mistakes and missteps, the foundation is firm and the best is yet to come. So if you're looking for a story that celebrates these things and embracing life's pivots to make that comeback in your story, today's conversation is going to be for you. So here's my encouragement. Grab your favorite pecan roll. Let it say Stuckey's on the front side of it, please. Grab your favorite beverage. Grab your Live Inspired journal. Buckle up. Get ready for a ride as I bring on my friend. She is about to be yours. Her name is Stephanie Stuckey. Stephanie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We're thrilled to have you on. For the individuals who somehow missed my preamble and they missed our long introduction of you and your work and your life, if they were to bump into you somewhere, maybe in a grocery store or an airport and say, Stephanie Stuckey, hmm, that name sounds familiar. What do you do, Stephanie? How would you answer that? I make pecan snacks and candies and tell stories. That's what I do. And it's all about the comeback. How do you make a comeback? How do you reinvent yourself at any age? Or how do you reinvent your brand, your company? And if it's a company you own, the two are entwined, right? They are intertwined and, and the life story informs the work that you do. And it's true for all of us. It's in particularly true in your case. I've had such a blast learning about you. And I'm excited to share this story with our audience today, whether they're watching us or listening. For those who uh, aren't as familiar with you as I am, where'd you grow up? I had two places I grew up because I'm originally from middle Georgia and that's what I consider home. But when I was a year old, my father got elected to Congress. So we moved to Washington, D.C. It's really the best of both worlds. I feel like yeah. I was country mouse, city mouse, if you remember that children's story. I know you have kids. We had that whole experience of being in a small town and a rural community. But I grew up 
also in a very cosmopolitan city surrounded by diplomats and politicians. I have a bunch of friends from Georgia, central Georgia in particular, and, and most of them, yeah. once they fly away from home, they return. There seems to yeah. be a strong pull to Georgia. So I would imagine if that's true, it also means when you're away, you miss it. Oh, I love that. I love that your friends are returning. I think even if you don't return to live full time, there's always a part of you, anyone listening who's from a small town, there's always a part of you in that community, no matter where you go. And I think that's true wherever you're from, right? Like your neighborhood, if you're in a big city, your neighborhood defines you. Even in these big spaces, there's this sense of tight-knit community and belonging that we all long for. And so much of that is associated with our childhood. For me, it wasn't like I'm leaving this place that I have a strong connection to because I was so young, but we were home all the time because right. my dad was always campaigning. He was constantly running for re-election. <laughs> yeah, which you can relate to if you're in business, because if you're in business, I don't care what you're doing. If it's a service or if it's a product, you're always selling. If you're not selling, then what are you doing? You got to sell to make money. He was always campaigning. He was always selling himself and his message and his issues. Five kids in the family? Five kids. Yeah. And what was that like growing up? It was fun. I like being what I consider a big family. I think nowadays people are having less children. And so five may seem like a pretty good sized family. I think back in the 70s, that was about the status quo. And we thought nothing of throwing the whole family in the car and the Woody station wagon and taking these long road trips. And that's when we really got to know each other. <laughs> being at the bottom of the pecking order, I was always in the way back and always fighting for attention. So I think it's good to be a middle child. There's less expectations on you. Sometimes you are really hungry for people to pay attention to you. So you learn to be creative and outspoken sometimes by necessity, because right. otherwise you're going to get left behind. <laughs> so I, I found myself in the back of those Woody station wagons too. We had yeah. a Mercury wood on the side, six kids, yes. long road trips all the time. And I was always in the back. Yes. And for the kids listening to our conversation today, this is before they had vents in the middle and the back of cars. Right. The vents were in the front, man. They barely cooled the driver. They certainly weren't working in the middle and there was no circulation in the back. So I was a skinny child due to perspiration, <laughs> uh, but also a happy one due to love. What, what were your interests back then as a kid? What did you think you were going to do when you got older? I was interested in politics. I grew up in a political town. So I always envisioned that I would always either run for office or be married to a politician. It was interesting. I saw my mom as a role model in many ways, and she was the wife of a politician. And she was a full-time mother, homemaker. That was her career. She gave up teaching to do that. And I remember at about age 16, my thinking evolved and I was imagining what I wanted to be when I grew up and I thought well I want to be married to a politician and then it occurred to me well what if I disagreed with his views or what if he didn't get reelected? then where would I be and then it just turned and I thought aha wait I should be the one running I should be in charge of my own destiny and why do I have to find some guy and not that you can't find an amazing partner who can be part of your life and all of that, but it, I just realized like I had this moment and I think a lot of it had to do with going to an all-girls school that really supported a sense of empowerment and you can do things yourself and you can try things that are non-traditional for women and succeed. And fortunately, we have so many women achieving in all sorts of areas these days that mm. hopefully it's less and less a thing that you have to identify with your gender as being part of what makes you different. Right. With what you can or can't do. So yeah. you, you realize I can do this. You go to yeah, University policy. of Georgia for undergrad and law school. What, what yes. happens after you graduate law school? I wanted to try cases. Anyone who experiences going through a, a degree program where it's like a, a vocation, I think in a way it's almost uh, not fully taking advantage of all those years of study if you don't actually practice it. And even though I'm not actively practicing law anymore, I did want that experience of being an attorney. And I was an active. 
active an attorney for 30 years and I started out trying cases. I was a public defender. Yeah. So you have one of the most varied resumes of anyone I've interviewed. More than 600 conversations now on the Live Inspired podcast. And as I'm going through your background, I'm blown away at the jobs you've done. So I'm, I'm going to go through a few of the jobs. We won't go through all of them because we'll run out of time. But a few yeah. of the jobs, talk about what you did and then what you learned. So public defender, you're a, a kid, 24 and a half years old. You're a public defender. What, what were yeah. you doing back then? I was learning to try cases, but more importantly, I was learning essential skills that I've used throughout my life, how to speak in public, how to argue persuasively, how to convince people, how to think quickly on your feet. There's nothing more demanding than being in front of a judge and a jury with your client's life on the line and a judge grilling you about some procedure or evidentiary law, you better be able to think quick on your feet in those yeah. circumstances or the prosecution objects to your line of questioning. If you don't have a good response, the objection is going to be upheld and you're going to have to quit questioning and you're not going to get that piece of evidence out. So all of that was so critical, like thinking quick on your feet, right. such an important life trait. And I learned a lot. And more importantly, I learned how to argue for the underdog. And I think that's the theme throughout my career is I have always advocated for people and causes that I think are deserving of attention. Mm. And I was advocating for people charged with crimes because I believe in something larger than just their individual case. Although I absolutely would zealously defend my clients but it was about a higher calling, which is the legal system. Everybody is deserving in our country to their day in court. That's what sustained me initially, that sense of public service and that sense of wanting to make sure that people who often don't get representation get heard. Mm. We live in such a divided time right now. And so this next yeah. question, I think, plays off of that a little bit. But also for those of us struggling in a relationship, whether it's at work or at home, I'm blessed to have now 2,600 clients we've spoken to, and I love them. Like, I just love these folks. And, and I think the kind of individual that wants to bring us in are the kind of individuals you want to do life with. You mm -hmm. are representing some difficult people to do life with, some difficult people probably to like or to love. So when you found yourself seated next to or across the, the, the table from someone you did not like, you did not love, you did not respect... How do you push that away and still meet them where they are to serve them in this role that you had? Well, this translates, like you said, just beyond my individual cases, oh, but just life lessons that anyone can relate to. We all have times where we have to figure out how can you connect with people that you don't have an instant connection with that may have very different backgrounds and circumstances. And you have to think of what is your higher calling? And my higher calling is a belief in our country's justice system. It's far from perfect, but I think it's the best justice system in the world. And how awesome is it that we live in a country where every citizen can demand a right to have their case heard in front of a jury of their peers? It's flawed. There are absolute flaws. But again, I think it's the least flawed of all the justice systems throughout the world. There are moments, even when you've like done everything possible and you've planned your case and you're trying your case, life's just gonna throw something at you and you just have these, oh crap moments and you just have to pivot quickly. Let's talk about pivoting from public defense yeah. <laughs> into your next role as a partner and family practitioner. I started doing more juvenile law, which led to family law. So I did a lot of work dealing with minors, which I think is really the best opportunity if you want to try to have a difference in people's lives, whether it's the criminal justice system or business or life, education, anything. If you hmm. can really connect with someone, especially if they're having challenges in their life at a younger age, that can make all the difference. And so I started focusing on that. And then I also got very involved with environmental issues. Those became my passion projects. Let's talk about your time in Congress. 14 years, is that the length? Yeah, the state legislature. Mm -hmm. 
I loved yeah, it. It was, it was a good run. What was the most challenging part of being in the legislator? The acrimony, the divisiveness, the politics of being a states person. I really wanted to focus more on lawmaking and advocating for issues and more and more politics got more partisan and more divisive. And that's when I just didn't run again. And I think that's, it's gotten worse. I left in 1992 and it, it just got to be whether you have a RRD by your name. And now I don't even talk about party or political affiliation. I talk about issues like I always have, but I'm, I'm less concerned about things that are partisan and more concerned about things that unite people. And I, I just felt like it was getting beyond that. And it was very based on how much money you can raise. And a lot of people don't get represented when who is influencing elections are the right. people who afford to donate to campaigns. And I just, I got very frustrated with all of that. You mentioned a moment ago, that this passion for the environment and environmental law. Where, where did that stem from? I just care about the environment. I grew up in middle Georgia, which has beautiful lakes and farmland. And my family's always been in forestry and also pecans. We've always had a pecan orchard and just being in nature. My dad was in Congress and his big issue was preserving Cumberland Island off the Georgia coast. And he passed the legislation that made Cumberland Island a national seashore. So some of my earliest memories are going with my, my father and exploring Cumberland before it was protected and it was being threatened by development. There's many books written about what happened on Cumberland and the developer of Hilton Head Island had his sights set on Cumberland and he was going to develop it just like he had Hilton Head, Charles Frazier was his name. And my father fought that and made it a national park. And today it is one of the most beautiful pristine places. They just celebrated their 75th anniversary of it being a national park last year. Mm. So I grew up around that. I grew up with a real connection to the outdoors. And then the director, and I'm just going through some of the, the things you've done. And again, not all the things you've done, but the director of sustainability for the city of Atlanta. I love that. That was the best job. I served in the legislature with Kasim Reed, who then became mayor of Atlanta. And when I left the legislature, I ran an environmental nonprofit for several years. And Kasim called me one day, Mayor Reed, and said, come work for the city. And we had so much fun. I worked for the city for three and a half years. He was term limited out. So I stayed through his term. And we did amazing things. We were at the Paris Climate Talks. We were part of that accord, COP21, when cities across the world made pledges to reduce their carbon footprint. We established the largest municipal solar program in the state. We established the largest municipal electric vehicle program in the Southeast. And we did the largest energy savings performance contract. I loved it. I'm still very passionate about sustainability and the environment, but I've transitioned to running my family's business. Well, that sounds like a good transition we should make. So in addition yeah. to that, you're the chief resilience officer. We could spend a whole podcast on yeah. that one. But at 53, when many individuals are looking to pull back their shoulders and run through the tape and finish strong and then relax for the remaining aspects of their life, you get an email that changes the trajectory of your life. Yeah, I totally had my life set. I was passionate about the environment. I was head of sustainability for an environmental nonprofit in Atlanta and just loved it. And I literally got an email one day from one of the owners of Stuckey's asking me if I wanted to, to buy it. People ask me all the time, what made you pivot your career later in life? Why did you buy Stuckey's? And the answer is really simple. It was for sale. Nobody else wanted to buy it. None of those other siblings were interested. So it was just me. <laughs> you, and I, you and I were talking before we hit record about your life and your work and your passions and your background and your last name and the business attached to that. So Stuckies, for those who maybe are not super familiar with that term or with that brand, yeah. what is Stuckies? What are you buying? Today, you're buying the most delicious pecan snacks and candies you'll find <laughs> anywhere. Our history is that we started as a roadside pecan stand. So we're really reinventing the brand the way we started, which I think my grandfather, if he were alive today, would really like. But he grew the company from 
this roadside stand in Eastman, Georgia during the Great Depression to at its peak in the 1970s, there were almost 400 stores in 40 states on every major interstate. They were called Stuckies, and they were a roadside oasis. You pull over, you get gas, there'd be clean restrooms, quick hot snacks. We had a snack bar, lots of fun kitschy souvenirs that people to this day will email me and say, I've got a wee wee willy or smoking monkey or whoopee cushion or a snow globe or rubber alligator, you name it, at Stuckies, and still have it today. So. You could get fun souvenirs, and then we always have sold pecan snacks and candies. And he built a candy plant and made all those candies ourselves. It was my grandmother's recipes. So there's just this wonderful legacy there. But he sold the company a year before I was born. It was out of our family for decades. And by the time it was for sale and I bought it, there were only a dozen original stores still left. The company didn't own any of them. There was a very loose and fast franchise program in place that was out of compliance with the law. It was kind of a hot mess. And the company was six figures in the red. It was kind of a mess. <laughs> you know, it sounds like the kind of thing you should run from. Like in, any actual yes. friend would say, Stephanie, uh, yeah, don't do this. And that's what most run. of your friends and family members are recommending. <laughs> I love the fact that you go to various business advisors and you keep going to the next one and the next one until you get the answer you want to hear. Yeah, I went to three. The third said, bad idea, but, and I clung on to that, but, and he said, I see what's not on the balance sheet and that is the value of a brand. So I would highly recommend people who are looking at taking a, a life pivot, make sure that there is that higher calling. It's gotten me through everything I've done. I know it's gotten you through. I mean, you've gone through some really amazing challenges and you got to have a higher calling to get through it. And even after you make these hard decisions, living through those decisions day in, day out is the tough part. And that's where the higher calling helps you because there are days, it's been four years since I bought the company. And there have been days when I'm like, why the heck am I doing this? And then you go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I want to show the comebacks are possible. I want to do honor to all that my grandfather built. I want to show other people who are looking at reinventing themselves that they can do it. Like, that's what I'm in it for, building a team, creating something special, you know, cling on to that. We're going to go through some of the challenges you faced from day one and into day three and beyond. But the paper did not see it as such. I understand a paper in Atlanta had the headline, Eris gets Stuckies. What, what were you getting at that point? You started to open up the boxes of what you were buying and it did not make you feel like an heiress. I think of Eris as someone like Paris Hilton or the Kardashian family who actually inherit something of value, not sinking their life savings into a company that's six figures and the red. What I got, though, I got a trademark that really was tangibly the most valuable thing I got, which, by the way, needed a lot of legal cleaning up. Thank goodness for my patent and trademark attorneys. But I uh, physically what I got, which was unexpected, was my mother gave me my grandfather's papers that she had in storage. And I mean, she married into the Stuckey family. So it's pretty funny that my mom is the one who had the papers, but she's a saver and an organizer. And so she had all those papers. There were six boxes of them. And she said, I think he would want you to have them. I called him Big Daddy. Big Daddy would want you to have his papers. So I would spend every night after I was trying to figure out how to build a team and grow the company and rebuild it, I'd spend every night reading his papers for inspiration. And I learned his story, which I didn't know. I knew him as my grandfather. I didn't know him as a businessman. He sold the company by the time I'd been born. So that was the most valuable thing I got. And that's what gave me the inspiration of seeing how he did it, really helped me figure out how to re rebuild his company. You refer to it as an 80 year old startup. What do you mean mm -hmm. by that? We had to reinvent the company and we didn't have really anything. Our, our office was an RV connected to a rented warehouse. It was as far from where we had been at our peak with these beautiful, my grandfather had the most beautiful headquarters and he employed almost a thousand people. I mean, and here we were this double wide with less than 10 employees. 
and only like five of them were full time. One of the things though, that I'm curious about is as you're reading through your grandpa's papers, what did you learn from that? Because it seems to me like you're not only buying his brand, you're, you're investing in the legacy and then carrying forward that and the name and the patents and everything else forward. So as you're reading grandpa's life story, what are you really learning? The most important thing I learned was how to pivot and to not only accept change, but to embrace it. And any business that has any amount of longevity, and it's amazing how fast moving businesses these days with the era of technology and innovation and everything is moving so fast. It's even like on hyperdrive now where you have to pivot constantly. His pivots were a little slower because innovation may not have happened as rapidly, but he had, I'll just give one of many examples, but throughout his papers, I saw where he faced incredible challenges. And every single time, instead of just hiding from them, he said, okay, right. this is happening and I'm going all in on the fact that I have to change. Here's the best example was when he started the company, it was this one roadside store and he built it from that store to, by the 1950s, he had about a dozen stores and was making very good money. And he'd started, I think at that point, he'd built his candy plant and the distribution center. So things were going really well. And then the worst thing happened, and it was actually in the guise of innovation and progress. And that was the interstate highway system in 1956. Great if you're in supply chain and suddenly goods are getting rapidly across the country very efficiently. But if you had stores on the Jefferson Highway, the Lincoln Highway, the Dixie Highway, Route 66, guess what happened to you? You got bypassed. That was devastating to his business. And instead of just hunkering down and saying, okay, I'm going to keep my stores on the Dixie Highway and just hope I'll survive, he shuttered those stores and he moved to the interstate. And he took what could have been really devastating and made it just this incredible opportunity for change right. before they moved to the interstate his stores had all different architectural designs and there was no consistency in the design when he moved to the interstate he said all right i'm going to come up with a distinctive design that will brand us and so he got this curved roof right. that some folks will remember it had a color similar to what's behind me this this sort of this bright teal and he had uh, a new logo designed, and then he started putting billboards up. He got prime real estate because nobody was on the interstate. So many businesses were digging in their heels proverbially and staying on these other roads. So there was this wide open landscape on the interstate. So he was buying up land at pretty affordable prices, getting these great locations, having these branded stores, new logo. And he's like, this is my moment. I'm going to expand. It was a game changer for him. It made him a millionaire. He got an exclusive deal where they sold Texaco only. And Texaco gave him a percentage of every gallon that he sold. And, and that's where he got rich was, was through the move to the interstate and selling Texaco gas. So you're reading about, about this in his own words, and now you're trying to figure out, is this business that you bought is losing money? How do I apply this in my own world today? Yeah. 2018, 2019, 2020. Now you got COVID on the scene and everything else. What's your first step? I mean, if you're losing money and the house is burning and everything's struggling yeah. and, and there's cats below your double wide, what are you <laughs> doing to begin turning the tides back into your favor? Well, I think the most important thing I would say is that this doesn't happen overnight. You don't figure out how to dig yourself out of a ditch right away. but And sometimes you keep digging further into the ditch, but eventually you will get far enough down where you find a foundation on which you can rebuild. And I had a critical moment where I, I went and visited all the stores because initially I was like, oh, I'm going to rebuild those stores. We have a dozen of them left. All right, here's an opportunity. Maybe I can figure out how to partner with the owners and we're going to reinvent these stores and it'll be great. Well, then I started looking at the stores and driving to Paxico, Kansas and Baghdad, Florida and Somerton, South Carolina. And I spent weeks driving and looking at these stores and it didn't look so great. 
And I went to this one store in Marion, Arkansas, and it looked so bad. The store had a hole in the roof and it was falling apart. And I remember just sitting in that parking lot crying, thinking this is what I've invested my life savings into. And I walked into the store and that was when I had my aha moment. Not everyone has an aha moment, but I had an aha moment. I walked in the store and it was filled with people. And the store looked terrible. And I talked to this guy in line and I said, why are you here? The store is an embarrassment. There were two things that I took away from that. First was he said, maybe Stuckey's is a fixer upper, but so am I. And so is this country. This is right during COVID. And he said, but I remember what a special place it was. So it told me one, that there was still a connection emotionally with the brand. But then the other thing that he didn't say, but I just saw was he was buying our product. And I thought, okay, I don't have the money and the resources to, to rebuild these stores. It would cost so much money that I didn't have. And I couldn't get any banks to loan to me. And I saw that he was buying products. So I thought I, I can do what my grandfather did, which is pivot, but also he started as a pecan company. He always considered Stuckey's a pecan company. Even at our peak as a roadside chain, the store said Stuckey's pecan shop. It was what we did. We're based in Georgia, the number one state in the country for pecan production. We produce more pecans in Georgia than anywhere else in the world. So I was like, that's what I can do. I can start making pecan snacks and candies again. All of that had been outsourced for decades. So I thought, that's what I can do. I can start making the pecan snacks and candies again, true to my grandparents' original recipes. That was my turnaround moment. And then I built a team because you can't do the stuff alone. And I got two business partners and we got an SBA loan, which you can get for manufacturing in rural America, especially mm. during COVID. There was a lot of emphasis on let's quit outsourcing stuff to all these other countries. When the supply chains were disrupted, we realized the failings and the vulnerabilities in our economy that we need to make more stuff here in this country. So there were government loans available for that stuff. So it just all kind of suddenly it started working for us. It, it suddenly started working and it's not an overnight success, but it happened yeah. more quickly than I would have expected. It, within yeah. six months, you're profitable. Yeah, this is true. I think of most startups is you have ups and downs. So we, we had some months when we weren't profitable, but that first month of profitability was pretty exciting. And, and now we are consistently profitable, but comebacks don't happen overnight. They, they do take a while. They take consistency. I've bought along with my business partners, a pecan manufacturing facility. And, and so we feel like we were on the right path and we're growing. It's trending in the right direction. For those of us who want to learn more about the pecan logs and other assets that you are now putting not only in your stores, but in other stores, yeah, where are you available now? I know it's beyond just Stucky storefronts. That's right. I mean, there's just a handful of those stores. So that if, if that, that were the key to our success, it would be not much of a success. So the real key to our success is the really thousands of stores across the country that are now selling our brand. I think some of the larger ones, Hobby Lobby, they're nationwide. So you can find our pecan snacks on their shelves, usually right near the cash register. We're also in Travel Centers of America. They sell our pecan log rolls, select pilot stores in the Southeast, Wawa in Florida, Food Lion in Ingalls, and some Piggly Wigglies in Alabama, and Mapco, which is a great convenience store chain. And then we've got lots and lots of specialty retail stores all over the country. And if you're in the food world, I think more relatable is that we're in a lot of distributor networks. So we're in Fiststar and McLean's and Cormark and Hackney, HT Hackney. So a lot of these are distributors that in turn will sell to retail operations. So that's one of my favorite things is walking in a store that I didn't know was, was one of our accounts and seeing our product. And it's because they're going through our distributor partners. So that, that's been a huge part of our growth is that we are, are going through distribution networks. What, what does your family, you know, you're one of five and yeah. you all grew up with that last name and you all grew up in the Woody station wagons actually going to yeah. these stores. And then you probably went a long time without going to those stores and without yeah. seeing the Exxon rolls and everything else that you, you sell and promote. What's been their response to this brand coming back to life? They're supportive. 
supportive. They love it. They had a chance to get involved. I could have welcomed investors at the beginning and they passed and I understand why they did. They all were in different places in their lives and none of them have said they regret it. It isn't the right decision for everyone. You've got to have a passion for it, but they're all incredibly supportive. They're probably my best customers. They all get the friends and family rate on all our product. We have so many Stucky family members that order product that there is a designated contact in the company who just manages. I mean, that's not all her job, but part of her job description is that she is a liaison for all the Stucky family members. <laughs> so you spent a lot of time living and working within government. What, what did you learn within politics that you have then applied in your role as a leader, as a CEO? Just being able to work with people of different beliefs because politics is so partisan and people have very set beliefs and you're not going to always agree with people, but you have to find those points of commonality. I think the really fun thing about my new career is the chance to interact again with people that I worked with in my political years in a way that's nonpartisan mm. because a lot of, I, I come across people I knew in politics all the time. In fact, the man who for many years was head of the agriculture committee in the state house is now head of the Georgia Farm Bureau. Well, that's a huge organization for Stuckey's because we buy all of our pecans from Georgia farmers. So that's a great networking opportunity for us. And I was just at their conference and saw their president who is a friend. And so I love that. I love that finding those points of connection regardless of, of what your, your beliefs are politically. I, I think we need more of that, getting beyond that and finding what connects us and sustains us and builds us. Yeah, it's it's such a strange leading question. To, like, what party are you with? As if we're yeah. going to bring ourselves down to the least common denominator and immediately yeah. turn off 50% of our friends or, or, yeah. or at least potential friends and partners and family members. Yeah, I don't I don't talk about that anymore. I'm a, I I just say I I vote my conscience, I vote the person and that, that is true. I do tend to vote one party, but I still will occasionally cross party lines, so every single case is different. Every election's different. What is next for Stuckies? Well, we're going to continue on the trajectory that we're on, which is we want to be the go-to pecan snack brand in the world. First we have to be in the country and then beyond. But when you think about it, if you go on the snack aisles in your favorite grocery store or convenience store, what do you see on the nut aisle? You see peanuts, you see almonds and cashews and pistachio nuts. Do you see pecans, standalone pecans? Very rarely, right? Yeah, that's They're right. They're fighting for space along with the Brazil yeah. nut in the mixed nut bag, which <laughs> I just think is an outrage because pecans are the only snack nut native to our country. They're the most sustainable nut. They don't consume a lot of water. I mean, the pecan is delicious with naturally buttery taste. It's healthy for you. It's got tons of protein and the good kinds of fats and helps your hair look shiny and all sorts of fun things. Uh, it's just, it's a great nut and it deserves its own space on the snack aisles of America. And we want to be the brand that people think of when they think of pecans. You ought to consider running for a pecan office. I'm not sure uh, you know, where you run specifically for that, but you're an incredible spokesperson for it. You have a quote, though, that I've heard you say again and again and again, just keep mushing on. Just keep mushing. Yeah. Tell, tell me what that means and, and maybe why our listeners and viewers might benefit from uh, putting that on the back yeah. of their cards. Yeah, mush on. Uh, that, was, that was actually from uh, one of my mentors, Mary Margaret Oliver, who is still in politics. And I started out working for her in the legislature. I was the staff attorney for the Judiciary Committee when she was chair. And then I later ran for office and we got to be colleagues and friends. So it's kind of cool when your former boss or mentor gets to be a colleague and then a friendship forms. I had a bill in the legislature that got defeated terribly. It was, I'm very proud of it. It finally did pass. It was 
what honestly I'm most proud of in the legislature, and it's not an environmental bill or criminal justice bill or a family law bill, it's related to beer. And I have a lot of constituents back in the day who, well, they still care about good beer. And Georgia had an artificial cap on the alcohol content of beer, and you couldn't buy good quality beer in our state. And so I was trying to raise the alcohol content of beer. It was very controversial. It took me six years to pass, and it, it got beat terribly. And it was all over the news. It was a popular bill. People were paying attention to it. And it, it was a humiliating, embarrassing defeat. And I remember just being in tears over it. And Mary Margaret went to me. I was in the ladies' room crying. And first of all, she said, don't ever let them see you cry. Dry those tears. She handed me some tissue paper and said, quit crying. And then she said, mush on. She said, you get back out there. You keep on going. You reintroduce that bill. You build a consensus. You build a, a team. You get a, a group behind you. It, it's all about coalition building. But I any lessons from that, but it's like mush on. You just, you have to figure out how you're going to go forward and what didn't work. Everyone says this, but it's so true. Failure is there to point you in another direction. And I learned, I was trying to just rely on people who love beer. That was not enough to pass that bill. I had to get people who cared about the economy and economic development and tourism. And suddenly I started building a coalition. I was getting, I got bipartisan support. I brought on people on the other party and, and it finally passed. And it really has been so amazing. Every time I see a brewery in Georgia that's doing well, or I see like how Sweetwater Beer, they were one of my biggest advocates. I got to know the team at Sweetwater when we worked on the bill. Sweetwater is now a national brand. Mm. And I, I think I was part of that. We did that. It was a good feeling. And it was about something so much bigger than beer. It was about building community and building economy and mushing on. But I had to pivot and figure out a different way to make it happen. No, I, I agree. And it is about bigger than beer and bigger than pecans and bigger than even your grandfather's yeah. beautiful legacy. It, it's about yeah. living vibrantly, the the one life you've got. And you're doing that extraordinarily well, Stephanie. We, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. I'm, I'm okay. pretty sure you're going to be capable of a of harvesting in this field with me. So question number one, what's been the most influential book you've ever read? Business-wise, I would say Good to Great and actually Life-wise as well by Jim Collins. Love that book. Read Whoa. it four times. Uh, that, you know, in doing a little bit of pre-work on you, I thought you might go with a Walmart book. I love that one, Made in America. That's a great book too. It's just such a story of entrepreneurial success and never giving up and knowing what's your niche and i like that sam walton took him took a market he else had given up on he said small town america there's money in small town america and they have needs for good quality products too and, and he had a philosophy he had a vision and he went after it and he was a really hard worker from the collins book a great you said john it's one of the best business books i've ever read but also applicable in my life tell me how how is good to great something individuals might benefit from? Well, there's three things that good to great ask, and it's what are you really good at? And, and by good at means really can be best in class, right? Amazingly good at. What can you totally sell at? What can you make money doing? And what are you passionate about? And you find, it's like a Venn diagram, you find where those three intersect and that's your hedgehog. That's what you hunker down on like a hedgehog and you just mush on, you just keep like, all right. And so for us, it's being the most delicious, best pecan snack brand in the world, right? So we're good at it. I'm passionate about it and we can make money at it. You can apply that to your life as well. Mm. What are you really good at? Are you an effective communicator? Are you a good writer? Whatever it is, what are you good at? Are you passionate about that? And we all have to, unless you're just born like Paris Hilton, which I wasn't, but even she's out to make money. <laughs> what can you make money at? You got to be able to make money. So the intersection of that, that, that's your personal best too. What is one personal characteristic that you had as a little girl growing up in Eastman and then D.C.? that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Persistence. 
I was very persistent as a kid. I think I still exhibit that to this day, but there are times when I'm like, okay, you got to draw on that inner well, that inner reserve that you have had your whole life, persistence. If your home caught fire and all your animals, all your children, your families all out safely, and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? My grandfather's papers. A lot of them are at the Stuckey's candy plant and they're in storage. I mean, they're, they're protected, but I do keep some of them with me for inspiration. So I'd run grab those. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Well, you already mentioned him. I really have always admired Sam Walton. I think he would be really high on my list. He would be my grandfather. I'd like to talk to him because I, I always talk to him just about stuff the kid would talk about with their grandfather. Totally. I never once asked him about business. I was I just turned 12 when he died. So it would be my grandfather. What's the best advice your grandfather or Sam Walton or anyone else has ever given you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Okay, this is a famous person. I wish I'd met him. I really like Jim Carrey. And he said something that I use a lot in my speeches, which is, and I may not get the quote 100% right, but it's basically the most valuable currency any of us have is the effect we have on others. When you think about it, that is the most lasting legacy that, that any of us have. And that is, how are you impacting other people? How are you making them feel? Are you forming an emotional connection? And that's really why our brand is still around today is because my grandfather created an emotional connection with people. So that mm. impact, how you make others feel, that's the most important thing any of us can do. What advice would you give yourself as a 20-year-old bulldog? So if you could go back in time and whisper a little wisdom your way at age 20, what would you say? Maybe not lose sight of your naivete. Uh, I think often, especially when we're young, we feel this need to know everything and to appear like we're just an expert because we're trying to prove ourselves. And, and, and I remember especially being young and now I'm appreciating it, but when I was 20, I looked like I was 15 and, you know, I, I looked younger. And so I was always trying really hard to dress and look older and act more mature. And I think that's a, a trap that a lot of us fall into when we're young that we just, okay, especially when I got elected to the legislature, I was 32. And now I think that's young, but I remember the time just thinking, I'm not that young, but and I was just trying so hard to be like all official and professional, which you should be, but almost trying too hard. So I think I would say embrace your naivete. Sometimes that's your strength. Mm -hmm. It was absolutely my strength that I had zero background in business and really didn't know how to read a balance sheet when I bought Stuckey's because if I had had that knowledge and that experience, I would have walked away from what turned out to be the best, one of the best decisions I've ever made. So be okay with being naive. Be okay with not knowing everything. It's all right. <laughs> one, one that our politicians would benefit from embracing and our corporate leaders yeah. and our spouses and our children and every one of our listeners. Yeah. It's okay so, not to know everything, but the important thing is to admit it and then learn. Stephanie, it has been said, question number seven, that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? She cared about others. Stephanie Stuckey, thank you for caring <laughs> about others. Thank you for caring about your people, about your family, about your brand, about your grandfather's legacy, and about our listeners today. We are grateful that you chose to. Thank you. And I'm, I've been so inspired by your story, John. So it, the pleasure was all mine just to be able to chat with you and have this opportunity to share my story. Thank you. My friends, that is Stephanie. My name is John. Today is your day. <laughs> what a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, in today's episode, Stephanie Stuckey reminded us that comebacks are possible. And then when life presents a potential pivot, it's okay to not only accept the change, but to fully embrace it. 
Let it move you in a new direction. Watch where that takes you. Stephanie began that pivot in her journey in her mid-50s. I'm positive for you and me. We can begin our journey today. Accept that pivot. Embrace it. If you enjoyed today's episode with Stephanie and how she's revived this brand and built upon her family's legacy and embraced this role of learning and pivoting and becoming an entrepreneur midway through life, you will love our entire series on entrepreneurs. You can learn about that at the Entrepreneur Playlist. You'll discover invaluable insights and inspiring lessons from former Starbucks president, Howard Bihar, Netflix co-founder Mark Randolph, Hintwater CEO Kara Golden, and so many more episodes. You can listen in at the Entrepreneur Playlist now or on our website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Let me say that to you one more time. John O'Leary inspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our community. I want to thank you for doing life with us over here at Live Inspired Podcast. And I want to thank you for also telling your friends, your family, your, your coworkers, the ladies and gentlemen you work out with, that when you are looking for a pickup snack, you grab on to the Live Inspired podcast, and maybe they should as well. Thank you for tuning in this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar. Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.